Did you notice that... Uh, hang on. There are. So, I believe. What, what, is, what is faith? What does it mean to say, I believe? What does it mean to say, I have faith? Did you notice that um, all of those people in that big long list that was read out to us, well, most of them, or actually all of them, were known to have faith because of what they did. Abraham went on this big journey. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Rahab welcomed the spies. Uh, Samson and all these people did these uh, incredible things. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. And then those other people who were beheaded and sawn in half. But it was still, you know these people have real faith because something actually took place in their lives, that there was something that they actually did. We were told that um, these people had an assurance, a conviction, and it was based on a promise given to them by God about what was to come. And this conviction, this sense of hope and promise, enabled them to live and speak in certain ways. Faith and life. Have you ever wondered how are the two connected? How does what I say I believe as a Christian, how does it actually connect with the way I live my everyday life? should be a no-brainer, really, when you think about it. But I think in today's world, Christians can actually struggle to try and work that out and to actually live that out. Uh, statistics tell us that given the, the number of people who are here in this room and your average age, um, many of you may be just out of high school, there, there is probably, if you believe statistics, at least one or two or more people here in this room who by the time you finish uni in a few years won't call yourself Christian, assuming you call yourself a Christian now. That's what the sisters are saying. People in your age group, particularly when you face a big change like leaving school, going into university, everything is new and different, you're hearing different voices, you're surrounded by different people, uh, that is a time that many people begin to question the beliefs that I was brought up with. Are they actually true? Am I prepared to live them out? Am I prepared to take a stand on those things? Uh, I've been involved in ministry for about 25 years and sad to say, I've probably seen more people who have professed to be Christians and then come to a point where they no longer believe than I have people who aren't Christians who have come to a point where they do believe. It's, It's a reality in this world. And among the reasons that I hear people give for why they no longer believe, no longer either believe in God or no longer want to identify as a Christian, there's probably three top reasons why I no longer believe. The first one is I don't no longer consider it rational. You know, there's no proof. Prove to me that God exists uh, and, and I'll believe. Um, Or at least, even if there is a God, can you really make absolute claims about God and what what God is like? 
So that's probably the third most common. The second one is, uh, well, there are other things that are actually more important to me in my life. Romance, my job, my lifestyle, my reputation. And life is actually so much easier if I don't have to make a stand on beliefs that would threaten those things. If I say I believe in God, then my friends will think I'm stupid. They may not be my friends anymore. So my friends are more important to me than actually standing firm on what I believe or know is true. But the number one reason I tend to hear is it's just not relevant. You know, a set of beliefs, ideas, but how does it actually work out in the nitty gritty? You know, it it just doesn't seem relevant. Um, There are lots of other things that I can use to actually have a happy, fulfilled, satisfied life. Why do I need religion? And uh, you'd probably agree that number two and number one are actually probably quite similar. So, you know, I've got a got a new girlfriend, not, not me, just an example, a new girlfriend. Um, I can't see how my Christian faith helps me to in that relationship. So it's not, it's not relevant. Um, and so I'd rather have that relationship work out myself than try and do the hard work of thinking through applying my Christianity to my relationship. Uh, and, and the more that I speak to people in Category 1... I find that very often, actually, it's really just more of an excuse than a reason. Uh, They actually really just want to be living their own life. And so it's a very kind of uh, intellectual, intelligent, respectable kind of reason to give. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm smart and I've worked out it's no longer rational to believe in God. Uh, But really, underneath, it's an excuse where they still don't see the connection between religious belief and the way we live our lives. So when it comes down to it, most people abandon Christianity because they struggle to see how faith and life are integrated. And that's reinforced by the culture we're living in. We're told, you are free to believe what you want, but don't you dare impose your beliefs on me. So keep it private, keep it personal. What that means is you're not permitted to do or say anything in my presence or within my earshot that might possibly communicate that you are right and I am wrong. You must keep your faith reduced to simply a private belief in theoretical ideas and if you try to make other people believe what you believe, then you're a bigot. That's the kind of message that we we tend to hear in our culture. And so we start to believe what we're hearing. Faith is private and it's just intellectual belief in a set of ideas. And we look around ourselves and we say, actually, there's plenty of non-believers, non-religious people who are, they're nice people, they're doing good things in the world, they seem happy. So, you know, is there any connection? We turn on the TV and we see reports of church institutions wrongly handing child abuse. And we think... Well, those Christians, they're actually worse than those non-Christians. And so all of this stuff is around us all the time trying to tell us 
your faith is just a private intellectual belief in ideas which are really kind of outdated and you, know, you need to get with the times. Uh, and so we, we can struggle to see how my beliefs translate to the way I live. What's next on there? James 2, 17-18 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James, not me, James in the Bible, makes it clear that faith and works, faith and life, are the two essential components of what it means to be a Christian. And notice how he criticises those who want to separate them. You know, you show me your faith, you tell me what you believe, but I'll show you, he says, no, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You can't separate the two. The solution to a faith without works uh, isn't actually to focus on doing more works, That's the person that James is talking about. Uh, The person who says, well, you might like to talk a lot about theology and doctrine, but at least I'm actually out there doing something. So, you know, you you might express your faith in the things you believe and talk about and theology stuff, but um, I'm kind of the person who's out there doing it. I'm the doing kind of Christian. James says, well, no, you can't even think that way. Faith and works together is what it means to be a Christian. One way to think about this is if the Christian life were a train. Now hang on to this image because we're going to unpack this image as we go through tonight. If the Christian life were a train, faith would be the locomotive and works or living would be the carriage. Without the locomotive of faith, what would happen to the carriage? It would just sit there, not go anywhere, not achieve anything. There would be no power to actually make the carriage move, to make anything happen. And there would be no direction. But without the carriage, what's the point of the locomotive? The locomotive is specifically designed to pull the carriage. So if the locomotive is just sitting there, or even if it's moving along the tracks, if it's not pulling the carriage, well, that's a pretty pointless exercise. Notice, though, that uh, in this example, faith is the thing that drives the living, the works. Faith doesn't flow. It's not works that are pulling faith. It's faith that's pulling the works. Faith has a primacy. It must come first. Faith is the engine that drives our life. If the locomotive is faulty and breaks down or loses power, then it's as much use to the carriage as if it wasn't even there in the first place. So what that means is if if we're struggling to integrate faith and life, thinking how does it go together, or maybe we're looking at our life and thinking the way I'm living doesn't match what I profess to believe then we need to pay attention first and foremost to to what? 
faith. The train's broken down, you don't say, let's go and fix the carriage, say, let's go and fix the locomotive and get this train back on the road again. Going out and trying harder to do more in order to make myself appear more Christian is just like adding extra carriages to the train when the locomotive is still faulty or not even there. Uh, I know a number of people who have done that, who have struggled with doubts in their, their belief in God and they thought, oh, I'll fix this, I'll, uh, I'll get baptised and I'll sign up to this roster at church and I'll start doing all of these things that will make myself more Christian. And they thought somehow by doing that I will fix my faith and deal with my doubts. Most of the people I know who tried that, again, no longer even profess to be Christians anymore because it, it didn't work. The problem is uh, we have a problem. We've taken on board the world's definition of faith as just intellectual belief in, in, in theoretical ideas and so when we hear things like come and be built up in your faith or you know, come along to ES and hear a Bible talk, for example, we tend to think what that means is let's get lots and lots of knowledge intellectual knowledge, so about the Bible and about Christian ideas and thoughts and doctrines. But what, uh, hopefully what we're going to see this weekend is that uh, just assenting to the truth of an idea, like looking at the Apostles' Creed and say, yes, intellectually in my head I believe that's all true, that's just one little part of faith. There's a book called... Core Christianity. We've got it here. In fact, I've got four books here. I was going to bring one book and uh, do a giveaway as a competition, but then I started reading the book and in the first chapter, the author said something that completely contradicted something I was going to say here, so I thought, I better not give you that book because he must be wrong and I must be right. Um, but, but you win from that because I've now got four books and so you have the opportunity to win a book pack at the end of camp. So for the four talks I'm going to give, there will be a question related to each of those talks. And the first person to come to me at the end of camp with the four correct answers will win the book pack. Uh, one of the books is Core Christianity, Finding Yourself in God's Story by a guy called Michael Horton. Really worth reading. And in, in this book... He, he depicts the Christian life as a journey uh, and Christians as pilgrims. And whenever you go on a journey, uh, these days we have Google Maps on our phone. Um, 150 years ago, if you went on a journey, especially if you're in a ship or something, what would you take to navigate? A compass. And on the compass there are four key coordinates, north, south, east, and west and if you've got those in the right place you can navigate your journey uh, and he says uh, in order for us to navigate our Christian journey and integrate faith and life uh, there are four coordinates that we need to have on our compass to help us do that uh, he says and I think this is printed in your booklets he says in this book so the book is not Pilgrim Theology it's it's um, called Christianity. Anyway, 
The Bible's relevance lies not in helping the pious individual to attain spiritual well-being, but in the way it actually introduces us to reality. It's not a flight away from the world into the inner recesses of the soul, but a complete new existence within the world that God has made, sustains, has redeemed and will one day transform fully and forever into his everlasting home. It leads us away from the high places of the religious, the moral and the spiritual specialists. It keeps our boots firmly on the ground. Instead of ascending to spiritual heights, we meet God in his glorious descent to us. So in order to navigate this journey where faith and life are working together in harmony, we need these four coordinates. Let's see what they are. The first is drama. Do you know why it's important for us that faith is demonstrated in actions? Why is that so critical for us as human beings that faith is displayed and acknowledged and seen by the things we do? The reason is we're made in the image of God and the way God shows who he is and what his character is is he does stuff, he acts, uh, he does things in, in history. If you know uh, some of your Old Testament stories... What was it that maintained the faith of the Israelites right through their history? What was the thing that uh, all the prophets and everyone kept calling them back to that actually gave them a reason to be people and to be on about God's business and to, uh, to have a sense of purpose and hope as a people? Some people would say, well, it was the law. You know, God, God told them how they should live and what they should do. And he did give them the law, but how did the law begin? Do you know that anyone here know the Ten Commandments that can tell us what is the first thing that God says in the Ten Commandments? Wrong. This is something he says just before that. I am the Lord your God. How do they know that he is the Lord their God? What has he done to demonstrate that? Yeah, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, God did something concrete. He acted in their lives, in their history. He rescued them from Egypt and through that action, he showed them that he is their God. And they are his people. He showed them what he is like. He is the God who displays who he is by the things he does. We're made in his image. We display what's in our heart by the things that we do. So before he gets to the you shalls or the you shall nots and all the 613 laws, he says, here's what I've done. And all the way through the history he's saying, remember... Remember who you are. You are the people that I rescued from Egypt and I brought you into this land and I've done all these wonderful things for you. That's the kind of God you have. Well, it's a no-brainer, really. Why would you want any other God? What other God has done this for you? So have no other gods because I've done this. The Christian faith is unshakably built on historical realities. 
right from the creation of the world through to the sending of Jesus, a real person who lived actually as they affirmed, did actually live, he actually did things and his death and resurrection was a historical event in time and in history and God is continuing to do things in history. Christian faith begins with hearing the story of God's mighty works, the drama of God at work in this world. So in the train illustration, I guess you could say that it's drama is the tracks that the train is travelling along. With no, without tracks, the train is grounded. But the tracks are leading in a certain direction to a fixed destination. And that is God at work through history, bringing everything, all creation, us included, to this magnificent goal. Second coordinate is doctrine. Because we see God doing these things in his history, in our history, because I am the Lord God who called you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, therefore Israel said, there are things we can say about God that are true. That's really what all doctrine is. It's us saying this is a truth about who God is and what God says about us. So because of that, we can have clear answers to things. We can actually answer the questions like, why am I here? What does it mean to be a human being? Who is God? How should I live? We can actually have clear, absolute answers to those questions because they're based on God's actions revealing himself through history. Now, understanding doctrine is an intellectual activity, but that's okay because we're called to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Don't think if you're a Christian you've got to blow your brains out and think, believe things that are just ridiculous or, or not possible to believe. Even the small child who says, yes, Jesus loves me, is using their brain. They've heard a truth. The truth is Jesus loves me and they're stating that truth. That's one of the, the, uh, the greatest theologians of the 20th, 20, 20th century, Karl Barth, has written like volumes and volumes and volumes of doctrine and dogmatics and all this stuff. He was once asked by, I think it was a journalist, say, um, you know, Dr. Barth, can, can you kind of sum up your theology in, in a short phrase? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Doctrine could be seen as the fuel that you put in the locomotive to, to get the engine running and make it move. Third coordinate, doxology. It's just another word for worship. Doxa is, is the word that means glory, so it's a word that gives glory to God, it's worship. And what this tells us is that faith, uh, faith isn't just about hearing and seeing what God is doing and it's not just the intellectual knowledge of doctrine and truth but faith is intensely personal. Faith is directed towards a person, towards God. Remember in that reading from Hebrews told us that faith doesn't just believe that God exists 
But it says it also believes that he rewards those who seek him. That's a very personal statement. God doesn't just want us to believe intellectually in his existence. He wants us to come and to know him personally. So when the wonder of the drama and the truth of the doctrine captures our hearts and our minds, it, it works its way out in worship, in doxology. Our problem isn't that we don't worship, it's that we worship the wrong things. Human beings intrinsically are creatures who worship. Our hearts will always be crying out for something to be devoted to. And if it's not God, we'll latch on to something else. True faith sees God as our noblest, highest, most delightful, most satisfying, most glorious object of worship. And so any, any kind of doctrine that doesn't lead to worship really is empty. It's actually a farce. So in our, in our train illustration, you could say that doxology or worship is the engineer, the, the, the guy or girl who sits in the train and actually drives it, uh, the personal dimension of faith. And fourthly, discipleship. Now this is where the rubber of faith hits the road. Discipleship happens when all the things that this world has to offer upon which we've set our affections are just kind of pushed aside as we see the wonder of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and the truth of who he is. Worship isn't an awesome experience we have on a Sunday night or Friday night or whenever you might go to church. Worship is a life that is transformed by God's grace and a life that is propelled forward into what God has for you. We saw it in that reading, didn't we? People left everything, were willing to lose everything, even their own lives, because they'd been captured by this. Uh, Their faith that was firmly fixed on God enabled them to actually walk the talk. It was faith that caused people to leave everything and follow Jesus. It caused uh, the disciples to lay down their lives to proclaim Jesus. It caused uh, wealthy people to give up all their riches to love and serve the poor and all those other things that we saw in, in Hebrews 11. All these people were captured by a vision what the writer called a city with foundations, a heavenly country. Did you notice that those people in Hebrews were told a number of times they never actually received in their lifetime all the things that God had promised to them. They lived by faith in that which they didn't see but they hoped for it. And that was the opening definition, wasn't it? Faith is the assurance of things we don't see, the things that we hope for. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't know about them. When it says that they didn't see them, it meant they didn't actually experience the fulfilment of it in their own lives, in their own lifetimes. But then we're told an astounding thing right at the end. We're told God had provided something better for us, 
so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, uh, God's plan for these people was always to make them perfect and complete, to actually give them everything that he had promised them. This heavenly country, this uh, city with foundations. But it's like he, he just held back patiently over time, over history, as history unfolded, because his plan was to include us in all that he had promised those people. He, his plan was to give us the same hope, the same kind of faith that these people had. His plan was to include us so that we would have that same hope and we would be enabled as they were to do the things that they did because of faith. So discipleship in our train illustration you could say is the passengers in the, in the carriage who are being borne along to their God-given destination and as they're there in the, the carriage they're loving and serving one another loving their neighbour as themselves on that journey. Sometimes uh, becoming a Christian is talked about in terms of inviting Jesus into my life or making Jesus my Lord or deciding to follow Jesus. These are phrases you won't find in the Bible and it's not actually the way the Bible really talks about discipleship or living out your faith. When Jesus sent his disciples out right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. How are they to do that? He said, by baptising them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not just instructions about what words you are to recite when somebody is baptised. Um, but that's, that's why we, we use those words. Uh, to say the name of someone is to actually say everything that that person is, everything that person represents, everything that person has. So if you are baptised into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're actually brought into everything that the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit is and has and is doing. See, we don't invite Jesus into our lives, Jesus invites us into his life. He says, we're going on a journey, we're getting on this train, get on board and come with me to this destination that I have prepared for you. He commands us to leave our lives behind, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. See, we can't we can't see Jesus as an accessory to our lives. I'll, I'll bring Jesus into my life and add him in amongst all the other things and if I do that, maybe, maybe I'll be successful at uni or maybe I'll find a marriage partner, maybe I'll become rich and successful, maybe I'll be happy, whatever it is. We can't just say, I'll bring Jesus in as this accessory. Jesus says, no, I'm going to take you out of your life and I'm going to bring you into what I'm on about, into my life. When we truly see the drama of what God has done for us in Jesus, our hearts are captivated by such a glorious vision of his promises and his, his grace 
that we want nothing else but his glory, to live for his glory. So the object of a true and living faith is one that flows into an authentic life. It's a faith in the true and living God who has acted resolutely in history to bring people to himself through Jesus. And as this creed expresses, this is the triune God, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Uh, One God, three persons. And as we go through the creed, we'll unpack who is this triune God who has sent us this invitation, come into what I'm doing and be a part of it because in that you actually discover your true humanity.